John 6, verses 51 to 66. Hear the word of the Lord. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Lord, we thank you, our Heavenly Father, that you are committed to, to the sanctity of your name being demonstrated and put on display throughout this whole earth. Lord, we thank you for the reality that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell in it. Lord, there is not a single sinner who is outside of your sovereign control. There is not a single event that takes place that happens apart from your absolute knowledge and your purpose to work good for your people and to magnify the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you are faithful to your purpose and your plan, and you will diligently execute that plan according to your perfect will. Father, we praise you that even those of us who have been called by your grace find ourselves within that good purpose of your will to redeem a people for your own possession that they might be to the praise of the glory of your grace. Lord, that's our delight and our joy this morning. And I pray that you would help us truly rejoice in the reality of the gospel. Father, sanctify our hearts today in the truth. Indeed, as we've memorized, we do want to be sanctified according to your truth. Lord, so would you do that work in us by your spirit and according to your grace this morning. 
Those of us or those who are here among us who have not been called by grace, Lord, who do not yet know the power of freedom from sin and the glory of forgiveness through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would work in their hearts today, that your spirit would move and blow upon them and that they would be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, work among us to glorify your name. Help us exalt your name together as one people. We pray this in Jesus' matchless and mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, those of you who have been uh, in the Sunday school class uh, with Dan Schneider, you know uh, that there is so much information uh, that he's trying to get through and so much that he finds himself unable to get through uh, that would be good for us to know, but he just doesn't have the time uh, to do that. If you're not coming to that class, I highly recommend that you do. Uh, it's extremely beneficial for helping you think through how to approach and how to engage with the world and the worldviews around you. If you want to be a faithful witness for the gospel of Christ in our time and, and in this day, this class will be a great help to your soul in helping prepare you to do that. So that's just a little parenthesis there, a little plug for the Sunday school class. But as we're walking through John chapter 6, I feel the same pressure as Dan feels when he's trying to walk us through these lessons. There is so much that could be helpful for us, so much that, that we... We need to see, in order to be equipped and prepared to live for Christ in our day, that he just can't get to in one hour session on a Sunday morning. I'm feeling that way as we're walking through the Gospel of John. There's so much here in John chapter 6 that I just can't get to it all. And if I tried to get to it all, it would not be helpful for anyone, right? Um, but I do want to encourage you, uh, don't let these sermons be the end and the sum total of your study in the Gospel of John as we're walking through this book. I, I, I really ask you, please go home and take the notes home and, and make them a matter of prayer. And go study the text for yourself and, and see uh, the rich grace of the Lord and, and, and the, the joy of discovery when the Lord enlightens the eyes of your heart to see a truth in a passage that you didn't see before. Go, go discover that for yourself. And I, I promise you there is far more in John 6 than what I'm covering with you in these sermons, believe it or not. And uh, so I'd encourage you to go, go study that out for your own soul. Now we're continuing to look at this interaction between Jesus and this crowd of followers here in John 6. And um, just as a reminder, as I said last week, this section serves to illustrate the truth of verses like 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, where we're told that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. So the reason why the natural man, the man who is characterized by the, the limitations of nature, of our fallen, depraved nature, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness to him. They don't make sense. They might be able to work it out mentally and understand the connections, point A to point B to point C and what the teaching is all about, but they don't, they, don't, they don't understand and they cannot perceive the significance of that truth. It means nothing to them. And so they don't receive it 
And, and in fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, they actually cannot receive these truths because these truths are spiritually discerned. And until that person has been made a spiritual person by the working of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, they are not going to be able to discern spiritual truths. Those spiritual truths will always be an enigma to them, something that does not capture the heart or enlighten the mind. In John 6, as we see Jesus continuing to shine the light of the gospel on this crowd of people who are ostensibly, on the outside, are his disciples, um, what we find is this progression in their opposition to the truth that he is making known to them. So that the more that the light of the gospel shines upon them, the more they begin to reject that gospel, the more, the more um, um, emphatically or the more... Uh, um, man, what's the word I'm, I'm trying to find? Somebody help me. Viscerally? Is that the word? The more desperately they're rejecting the light that Christ is shining upon them. That's right. And, and why is that? Well, because they are still natural people. They're still those who are characterized by the limitations of our fallen nature. And therefore, they cannot perceive the spiritual truths that Jesus is making known to them in his teaching. Now, there are four main movements or four main stages in this discussion that we're looking at between verses 41 and 66, and we saw two of them last week. I just want to go over that by way of summary at the beginning. We started looking in, in verse 41 with the Jews grumbling about what Jesus was saying, what he was teaching. He was teaching them that he had come down out of heaven in order to give life to the world, and in verse 42, the crowd, or excuse me, the Jews, which here is probably referring to the religious leadership in the synagogue at Capernaum, the Jews respond by complaining or by grumbling. Right? How can this man be from heaven when we know his parents? We know where he's from. We know the family he grew up in. How can he now say that he came down from heaven? Right? They're, they're struggling with their inability to logically understand what Jesus is trying to teach them. Trying to, trying to master what he's teaching them with their own minds. And if you have read in the Bible very much, and if you've exposed yourself to the truth of God's word at all, you very soon find out that the limitations on your natural mind are not able to grasp or comprehend or fully wrap around and engage with the truth that God reveals in his word. And what a tragedy it would be if we came to God and began to judge him according to the limitations of our own understanding, right? That's where we go wrong very often. Well, that's what these Jews are doing here in John 6. They are seeking to judge. They are seeking to evaluate Jesus based upon their own understanding of what is right and what is wrong. And Jesus basically responds to their grumbling by rebuking them and humbling them and helping them understand that it's really not about their ability to grasp the truth. That's not what's going to help them comprehend and understand what he's trying to teach them. In fact, the reason why they're struggling so much with what he's teaching them is because the Father is not teaching them with the truth that Jesus is making known to them. Right? In verses 44 and 45, Jesus states very clearly, the only reason why anyone comes to him is because the Father draws them. The only reason why anyone comes to the Son is because the Father is teaching them to come to the Son. And so if this crowd is not coming to the Son, what does that mean? 
That means that the Father is not drawing them, and the Father is not teaching them. See, what Jesus does there is he's taking the, the, the sense of power and the sense of control out of their hands and putting it back in the place where it rightfully belongs, or at least setting within their minds uh, the, the reality of who is actually in control here. It's not them. It's God. He's humbling them. So we see them grumbling and complaining. And then the second movement or the second stage that we noticed in John 6 is from verses 47 to 52, where Jesus clarifies the truth that he's saying to them, and the Jews uh, begin quarreling over what he's made known to them. So in verses 47 to 50, he reiterates the fact that he is the true bread that gives life to the world, and the way that that life is going to be received is by believing in him, by eating that bread, which he makes known in 51. He pulls that veil back, on the mystery of the gospel even further to disclose more light to them. He says, and this is the bread that I'm giving for the life of the world. It's my flesh. In other words, what's going to be the source of life for sinners in this world is the sacrifice of the Son of God, the Son of Man giving up his life in place of the world. And as he says there in verse 51, the only way to receive that life that he came to give is to eat that bread, to eat his flesh. That is, to trust in the Son of God, giving his flesh as a sacrifice so that we might live through him. Now, that's the heart of Christianity. That's the very essence and core of the Christian faith, that we believe in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. If you don't grasp that central core idea, then you don't yet understand the gospel. And you cannot be a true disciple of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the point that Jesus is making. The sacrifice of the Son of God is so central to the salvation of men that in order for dead sinners to come to eternal life and live in fellowship with God, they must embrace that reality with a true and a pure heart. They must feed on that truth. But as Jesus clarifies that truth of the gospel, what do we find the Jews doing in response? They become more agitated, and their opposition to that teaching manifests more uh, starkly. And we find in verse 52 that they start quarreling among themselves, a very strong word. They're they're arguing among themselves against Jesus. You know how it is. When you have somebody in your corner, somebody who understands things the way you do in opposition to someone else, You go talk with that person, and you feed off of each other, and emotions start to rise. And then you start attributing things to that other person that maybe aren't true. But you're quarreling among yourselves against this other person. That's exactly what's going on here with this crowd in John 6. How can this man, here's the central issue, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, that does not make any sense to the mind of a Jew, right? That actually offends the sensibilities of the Jewish person who has been reared upon the law of God. Because the law of God explicitly forbids cannibalism, right? In fact, God says you're going to commit cannibalism and that's going to be an expression of the severity of my judgment upon you because of your sin. You will eat your own children, 
when you experience the fullness of my wrath and judgment against you because of your disobedience. That's, that's an expression of, of depravity and evil that is unparalleled. When, when they actually begin committing that, it says in the Old Testament, God says to his people, you did atrocious acts of eating your children, things that didn't even enter into my mind. You committed, to, they were so evil. So a Jewish person who has been trained and reared according to the law and the prophets, when they hear Jesus start saying, you got to eat my flesh if you want eternal life, that's automatically offensive to them. And whether they were confused about the metaphor that Jesus chose to use here, or whether they were uh, actually being repulsed by uh, that thought of that cannibalistic tone of what he says, either way, As Jesus increased the light of the gospel upon them, they increased in their opposition to it and their rejection of it. So their rejection of the gospel was commensurate with their exposure to the light of the gospel. The more Jesus explained, the more they rejected it. Now that brings us to the third movement in this passage where we find that even though they were quarreling among themselves and their opposition and hostility to Jesus was on the rise, it was increasing, what we find in verses 53 to 60 is that Jesus doesn't back down. In fact, he presses this metaphor upon them more strongly than even in verse 51. So we find them, uh, Jesus confirming the truth he's just made and the Jews being offended or complaining about these truths. Now clearly the Jews were offended over the thought of needing to eat the flesh of the Son of Man in order to have eternal life. But amazingly, rather than backing off of that metaphor and finding some other way to explain this truth, which is exactly what we would do, Right? If we're out witnessing to somebody, trying to convey the truth of the gospel to them, and they're not getting it, and they're actually becoming offended at what we're saying, what we always try to do is we, we dump the method that we're using to talk with them about the gospel, and we try to find a new way to do it. Because we don't want to offend them unnecessarily, right? We want to try to find some way where we can explain the gospel to this person that they will be able to receive. And that's not always wrong. But what I want to point out here is that that's not what Jesus does. Here, he, he, he uses a metaphor that offends them. And when they become offended, rather than dumping the metaphor and trying to find another way to explain it, he amplifies the metaphor and presses it upon them more fiercely. It's like what he's saying has exposed a nerve and, and now what he's going to do is rather than backing off of that nerve, he's going to press it all the more Uh, uh, forcefully with this metaphor. And you see that in the verses that follow in 53 to 58. I'll read them in just a second. But five times he returns in these these, uh, six verses, he returns five times to this idea of eating his flesh. And then he compounds it by adding to it the notion of drinking his blood. Verse 53, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood. You have no life in you. In other words, this is a non-negotiable. This is absolutely necessary. You can't afford to be offended by what I'm saying because this is necessary if you want to be saved. You must eat the flesh of the Son of Man. You must drink his blood 
or else you have no life in you. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Why? Because of verse 55. Because my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. That is, it's true food and true drink because it brings true life, right? Just like food and water bring uh, physical life to our body, sustain that physical life within us, so it is with our souls in Jesus. He, his flesh and his blood being given over as a sacrifice in our place is what gives life to our souls. He is true food. He is true drink. Verse 57, Jesus, or 56, he says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. Verse 57, he says, he who feeds on me will live. That same idea of of taking in and ingesting the the flesh and blood of Christ. And then he closes it up on 58. He says, verse 58, this is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, but he who eats this bread will live forever. So you can see that repetition of thought. Just eat. You got to eat my flesh. You got to eat my flesh. You got to drink my blood. You got to drink my blood in order to be saved. Clearly, he is stating more emphatically the truth that eternal life only comes through feeding on him, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Now, with that stated, obviously, we understand that Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. He is not talking about what takes place at the the Lord's table, despite what Catholicism will say or even what Lutherans will teach you or even what other Protestants and uh, Presbyterians and even Baptists might say in relation to this. Jesus is not talking here about eating bread and taking a cup at the Lord's table. He's talking about the very essence of saving faith and what that saving faith looks like, what it does. That's what he's getting at here. And he's using this metaphor to to depict it graphically so it might strike at our hearts a little more uh, forcefully. Now, in amplifying that metaphor, Jesus is accomplishing two things. Number one, he's explaining more about what the bread of life truly is, and then he's explaining more about how the bread of life is to be received. You guys still with me here? I haven't lost you yet. I know it's dense. We've got a lot to get through, but I'm going to, hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll soar into good application in just a moment. Number one, Jesus... By, by amplifying and, and, and continuing on with this metaphor, he explains more about what the bread of life is. What is the bread of life? Well, the bread that gives eternal life is his flesh and blood. That is, it's his very life being given for his people. See, flesh and blood is, is amplifying even more the fact that Jesus is talking about sacrificing himself for the life of those who will come to him. He was going to offer his life in place of the world in order to save those who were given to him by the Father. Verse 33, it it says um, that the one who comes down from heaven, the one who comes down from the Father, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Well, this is how the one who comes down from heaven is going to give that life to the world, by giving his own life in their place. And you can think of, uh, maybe think of this in terms of like the animal sacrifices that took place in the temple. 
That involved the giving of flesh and blood for the forgiveness or the life of a sinner. So those animal sacrifices offered at the temple, that the flesh was put upon the altar and was consumed by the fires, right? Depicting the judgment of God consuming the sacrifice. And the blood of that animal was poured out where? At the base of the altar in the presence of God. So you've got the flesh of this animal being given, and you've got the blood of this animal being given in order that the worshiper who is guilty of sin in the sight of God would be forgiven of that sin and permitted to live. Right? Just picturing how God is going to work salvation and forgiveness for, for his guilty people. Well, in that same way, right, the Son of Man is telling us here that he would offer himself as a sacrifice, that his own flesh and his own blood would be given for the life of the worshiper so that all who will receive him as God's appointed lamb who takes away the sin of the world, so that all who will receive him will come and lay their hands upon him as the true and eternal sacrifice and receive forgiveness through his death. Or you could think about this in terms of the Passover even. Right, John 6, verse 4, it tells us that the Passover was near. Right, so this is all at the time of the Passover. What's on everybody's mind? The feast and the celebration of the Passover. What was it? You know, just as the, the Passover delivered the Israelites from death and judgment with its blood and flesh, right? Because where was that blood needing to be painted in order for the house to be passed over? Over the doorpost. Over every opening of the house, over the main opening of the house, you had to put the blood of the Passover lamb so that the, the, the angel of death would pass by that house. And then what did everyone in that house have to do with the flesh of the lamb? They had to consume it. Everyone in the house had to eat it. And in fact, the Lord says, you shall leave none of it over until the morning. You got to eat all of it. You got to consume it. That's going to be really important here in just a minute. Well, in a, similar, in a similar way, Jesus says our relationship and our salvation before God is absolutely dependent on the flesh and the blood of another that is given in our place. And that is the flesh and blood of the Son of Man. And so even in, even in metaphor, Jesus is making more clear that the way to eternal life for us is through his death. That's, that's the main point. That's what he's getting at. Now, but something I want to point out here is that as Jesus presents this metaphor in verses 53 to 58, what becomes clear is that it's not enough just to know the truth that eternal life comes through the flesh and blood of the Son of Man. As what Jesus says here, for example, in verse 54, eternal life only comes to those who will actually eat that flesh and drink the blood. Now that language in verse 54 is very similar to the language in verse 40, and that helps us understand what Jesus means whenever he calls us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. In verse 54, we are to eat the flesh of the Son of Man and we are to drink His blood and then we will have life and He will raise us up on the last day. But we find that same language in verse 40 where Jesus says, everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. 
So if we take those two verses and compare them together, what does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? It means to see him and to believe in him. It means to have faith in him. It means to own him and trust and and to truly entrust ourselves into his saving hands, believing that by his death he was going to do everything necessary to secure eternal life for our souls. That we would believe in him. That's what it means to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Clearly, it's not talking about cannibalism, even in the context, right? It's It's presenting in a graphic way a picture of what it means to truly believe in him. Now, it's interesting that in these verses, verses 54 to 58, Jesus actually uses a different word for eating here than what he has been using in the verses prior to this. So up to verse 51, Jesus is using a word, estheo. Estheo, it's a word, it's a normal word for eating in Greek. So if you were to sit down and eat a meal with your family, you're, gonna, you're going to be estheoing, right? You're going to be sitting down with your family and just enjoying a meal together. Well, in verse 53 to 58, Jesus changes the word into something that's a little more graphic, a little more forceful. He replaces the word with the word trogo, which is often used to describe the way an animal eats its food. Now, I'm sure you can picture in your mind a hungry animal eating its food. It doesn't take its time. It doesn't pick and choose. It doesn't leave any of it behind, really. It just almost ravenously consumes the food that is before it. I I think of my dog, Baxter, when one of my daughters forgets to do her chore of feeding him. There are times when my poor dog goes a couple days without eating. And when I start seeing his rib show, I'm like, Joe, did you feed Baxter? Oh, I'm sorry. I just outed you, didn't I? I'm sorry. It's a shared responsibility, right? Well, when, when he's gone a day or two without eating, and I go to put food down in his bowl, he pretty much becomes oblivious to the world. Right? He has one focus. And that is to get as much of that food into his stomach as fast as possible. He's not even tasting it. He's just horking it down, right? And he's not leaving any of it behind. He's picking up every little last piece of food and he's putting it into his stomach because he's hungry. You know, that's the word picture that Jesus is giving to these Jews as he continues on with this metaphor of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. What it means is that Jesus expects us not only to consume him, but also to be consumed by him. Right? It's not merely eating Jesus. It's not coming and picking and choosing what you will or what you won't take from him. It's not grazing on him just a little here and a little there. No, according to Jesus, salvation and eternal life is for those who will consume all of Him. Those who will be captivated by Him and who will give all of their effort and all of their energy and all of their focus to this one endeavor, receiving, taking in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think Brian Borgman is right 
when he says here that Jesus is using this graphic language, this, this graphic word picture, in order to express the necessity of total faith commitment to Christ. A total embracing of who he is and what he came to do for the salvation of sinners. A total abandonment of yourself unto his gracious love and mercy. A forsaking of all other foods that the world has to offer. All other things that you might seek in order to satisfy the hunger and the yearning in your soul. It's a forsaking of all of that in order to be engrossed by this pursuit of feeding on Christ. Total commitment to Him. See, it's all or nothing with Jesus Christ. It's all or nothing with Him. You're either with Him or you are against Him. There's no neutrality. There's no middle ground between any one person and Jesus. You are either on His side or you are not on His side. And I, I, listen, I know that at times in the Christian life there are gray areas where it's very difficult for us to understand the Lord's will in a particular situation, but you need to understand this about your commitment to Christ. It is not a gray area. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. A, a Christian that can live in carnality and sin for years on end and never once be convicted about their unfaithfulness to Christ. That is an impossibility. Hebrews chapter 12 says that if you can live a life of sin and you go without the Lord disciplining you out of that sin, then you are an illegitimate child. God is not your father. No, it's all or nothing with Jesus. And let me also add this. It's all or nothing with Jesus based on his terms, not yours. Right? Because this crowd was very emphatic, very, very enthusiastic about its pursuit of Jesus, right? At the beginning of the chapter, they saw Jesus uh, perform the miracle of feeding the five to 20,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish. They saw that happen. They experienced it for themselves. And they ran after Jesus in order to find Him, right? They're seeking after Him. They, they crossed over the lake. They, 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 they went around Capernaum looking for this Jesus. They wanted to make him their king. They loved Jesus as long as Jesus kept giving them what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to be king over them so long as that kingship matched what they expected of him. But the moment that Jesus begins to explain to them what it really is like in order to follow him as his disciple, they're no longer willing and ready to follow him. It's too much for them. And I want you to understand, Jesus does not accommodate his terms for their sake. His terms stand as stated. You eat my flesh and you drink my blood. You be consumed with me or you are not worthy to be my disciple. Now I ask you a question. Are you consumed with Christ? You know, there's a real plague on the church in America. And there are, there are numerous ways that it manifests. But one of the most discouraging ways that this plague on the church in America manifests, the church in the West overall, is the disdain that some churchgoers have 
when they meet someone who is absolutely and radically sold out for Jesus Christ. It's like they get offended by a person who says, hey, you know what? We really should be praying. What? What do you mean? We're justified by faith, baby. It's not about prayer. Yeah, sure, you can pray if you want, but don't make such a big deal out of it. Hey, guys, you know what? Like, I think, I think 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we ought to be living in such a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And I don't think that those TV shows that you're watching are pleasing to the Lord. Whoa, whoa, wait a second now. You just crossed a line. I'm free in Christ. Don't judge my freedom, you legalist. You hypocrite. We get uncomfortable when there's someone in our midst who has actually sold out everything in order to be devoted to Christ. And you know what that is? That's conviction. It's that person's zeal reflecting on your hardness of heart. Exposing what's true about you. Now at that moment, you've got one of two options. You can chalk that up to this person just being an unusual religious freak, a Jesus freak, right? And, and, and you're actually the normal Christian and this person is just taking it a little too far. Or you can acknowledge the reality and the truth that that person is actually living out legitimate Christianity and you are not measuring up to it. It's all or nothing with Jesus, and it's all or nothing on his terms. Now, according to your family, your friends, those who know you best in the workplace, would they describe you as someone who is feeding on Christ? When I, when I, come, when I see my dog eating his food, I know that there's one objective in his mind that's consuming him, and that is getting that food into his stomach. Are you that way with Christ? And can other people see that about you? See, Jesus isn't going to be an addition to anyone's life. He's not a cherry on top of that perfect life. He requires everything of you. He either is your life or you will receive nothing from him. Now, that's a, that's a point that lands heavy, I think, on all of us. At least it should. Let me give you an encouragement after giving you such a hard, borderline rebuking statement. I want you to notice in what Jesus says in verses 56 and 57, notice the benefits that come to those who consume or those who feed upon him. Right? It's, we can all point out areas in our lives where we are not living up to the will of God for us. Right? That's, that's easy to do. But where do we get the strength and the power to press beyond that and to press on to maturity in Christ? It's not by looking at our lives and saying, I'm not doing enough. I need to get going. I need to set up this plan. I need this regimen. I need these rules and these laws and these rituals to get me where I need to be. That's not Christianity. 
No, Jesus tells us the heart of true obedience and a life of fellowship with God right here in verses 56 and 57 when he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Verse 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Just just notice the benefits here. There are two of them, and they're described in slightly different ways. Verse 56, the benefit of feeding upon Christ is mutual indwelling with and in the Son of God. Mutual indwelling. That is, as you feed on Christ, you abide in Him, and He abides in you. He takes up dwelling. He remains in you, just as you take up dwelling and remain in Him. This is speaking of a very intimate relationship with Christ. Uh, BDAG, an authoritative Greek lexicon, uh, explaining the meaning of Greek words and stuff like that. Uh, BDAG says that this word is expressing an inward, enduring, personal communion with Christ. An inward, enduring, Personal communion with Christ. And we see this expressed in other verses in the New Testament. For example, Paul says in Colossians 1.27 that it's Christ in you that is the hope of glory. What gives you hope and confidence of glory one day? It's Christ in you. Not just the doctrine of Christ in you, but the person of Christ in you. This living, abiding, real person taking up residence in your soul. That is the hope of glory, Paul says. Christ in you. Or Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, he describes the blessing of having your soul filled with all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God. What does that look like for someone to be filled with all the fullness of God? Do you think that you're going to notice when someone is filled with all the fullness of God? Absolutely. It's the blessing of God's presence with you, the light of his countenance shining upon and within you, and you walking in communion and in the joy of the Lord. Now, how does that happen? How does that blessing happen? become more richly manifest in us? Jesus says it's, it's only one way. It's by feeding on me that you receive that blessing. Verse 57 goes on to describe this in a, in a different way, where he says that it's not only mutual indwelling that we get by feeding on Christ, but it's actually experiencing the life of God in your soul. It's experiencing divine life in your soul as you feed upon Christ. Now, we don't have time to get into all the details about what it means for Jesus to live because of the living Father, all right? I can talk with you more about that in private if you want to discuss that more fully. I think we have a clue as to what that means in John chapter 5. So go read that if you want to understand what it means for the Father to live or for Jesus to live because of the living Father. But I want to focus your attention on the main point that Jesus is making. Don't get hung up in that detail. Focus on the main point. There is a mutual sharing of divine life between Father and Son. That's what he says here. There is a mutual sharing of divine life between Father and Son. And Jesus says, the one who feeds on me, the one who consumes and appropriates all that I am by faith, 
in that person, the very life of God that is shared between father and son will be extended to him or her. In other words, that life that father and son share will be experienced in the souls of those who feed on him. I can already tell we're not going to get to the next point, but let's, let's end on this good note here. Don't miss this. This is so important to see and to understand about how you go about living the Christian life. What is Christianity? What is the Christian life? According to Jesus, it's not a bunch of rules and methods It's not ritualistic ceremonies and superstitions that drive and empower the Christian life. According to Jesus, the Christian life is lived by the very life of God flowing through your soul. That's what he means when he says, if you feed on me, you will live because of me. The life, the divine life shared between Father and Son is imparted to you as you more firmly and faithfully devote yourself to feeding your soul with Christ. It's all about Jesus is the point. It's all about Him. You keep His mind in perfect, no, you keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you. The the peace of God, it flows to your soul. How? By keeping your mind fixed on the Lord. Colossians 3, you are to set your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You're not to be focused on the things of the world and the things of the earth. You are to be diligent in focusing your attention upon Jesus Christ in heaven. And the more you do that, guess what? The more the life of Christ will be manifest in your life. Yes, the gospel promises eternal life in the future, right? Because Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day, right? That's that's a future reality for which we are all waiting. And every person that, that we have to say goodbye to and lay their body in the ground, we do so. Every believer that we lay down in the ground, their body, we, are, we, we do so in hope and in the reality that the day is going to come when Jesus Christ is going to command that body to come forth and to rise up to new life in him. Right? That, that is a future reality, and that's something that we are all waiting for and anticipating. If you're not anticipating that as a Christian, then you're living too much in the world that's now and not enough in the world that's coming. Okay, so that is a reality. That is something that we are waiting to experience. But what you need to understand is that according to Jesus' teaching here in John 6, eternal life is not something that you are waiting to experience sometime in the future. It's something that you have right now in the present. It's something that you are experiencing right now in the present. The real Christian life is a gloriously rich and satisfying life of power, a life of victory over sin, and a life of fellowship with God. And that is a life that is derived from the very life of Christ working within you. So if you're feeling a lack of fellowship in your relationship with God, what are you supposed to do? If you are experiencing a lack of power in your soul in the face of sin and temptation, 
What are you supposed to do? If you're not growing in your sense of communion and fellowship and attachment to Christ, then what are you supposed to do about it? Well, you don't go, get, you don't, you don't go formulate a bunch of rules and methods and, and, and by simple and sheer willpower, labor to get there. You get there supernaturally. Jesus says you get there by a power from outside of you working within you. Right? That's the Christian life. It's not you drumming up enough willpower to do the will of God for you. It is the will of God and the power of Christ working within you that causes His will to be accomplished. And Jesus says that power is administered to us by Him as we feed upon Him. As we devote ourselves more fully to Him. I truly believe that this is the answer to every sin struggle that we have. I believe that all the issues that believers experience and face in life in this world, all the struggles that we have within and outside the church, every failure that we succumb to, every, every, every issue of of depression and having a downcast soul and, and stumbling out. Every problem that we have comes back to this one issue. We are not feeding upon Christ the way we should. If you want more life in your soul, then you have to feed your soul with more of Him who is the source of life. Husbands, this is your wife's greatest need. This is what your wife needs from you. She needs a man who is filled with the life of Christ. Because you know what? It's not hard for a Christian woman to submit to a man who is filled with Christ's life. Wives, this is what your husbands need most from you. Your husband needs you to be a woman who is filled with the life of Christ. That is the only way you're going to be the help meet that he needs you to be. That's the only way you're going to fulfill the role that the Lord has given you to fulfill in your marriage is by being filled with the life of Christ so that you manifest the life of Christ in your home. That's what your children need from you. Parents, they don't need moralistic legalism. Or, or, or as Dan Schneider puts it, they don't need therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. They don't need that. What they need is for you as their parents to show them what it looks like to live a life that is filled with the power of God. They need to see from you what does it look like to live a life in fellowship with Christ you're telling me that I need that. You're telling me that I need to believe in Christ, but I don't know what it means. It's your job, parents, to show your children what that means by the way you live your life day in and day out. The fellowship that you cultivate with Christ moment by moment throughout your day. Singles, single people in here. What, what, do, you, what do you most need in order to live the single life to the full glory of God that the Lord called you to live. What do you need? You need the life of Christ in you to give you more satisfaction in Him. 
So that you're not focused on what you don't have, what he has not provided for you. Uh, Wanting a husband, wanting a wife, that's a good and godly thing. But if it becomes a consuming focus in your life, it's no longer good. It's an idol. What do you need to guard you from that? What do you need to get your mind off of yourself and help you see all the ways that you in your singleness are freed up to serve the kingdom of God and the people of God? What do you need? You need the life of Christ in you. That's what you need. You need more of Christ. You need to abide more more firmly in Him and you need Him to be abiding more tangibly in you. And the only way that happens is by feeding on Him. Just one more. You know the greatest need of this church is for each one of you to be as filled with Christ as you possibly can be. And you know what, guys? That doesn't happen when you flip a switch as you walk through that door here on Sunday mornings. You have nothing to offer the body of Christ as far as your own personal experience of the Lord. You don't have a blessing to bring into the gathering of the saints if you haven't been cultivating a heart and a life of fellowship with Christ throughout the week. Right? I mean, when was the last time that you really had a burden on your heart to share an encouraging word that the Lord gave you the the week before? You say, I can't wait to get into service because I want to share what the Lord showed me in His word with my brothers and sisters. Or when was the last time you had an encounter with, with someone out on the street and you knew the Lord was filling you with His Spirit to witness and evangelize to this person and you just can't wait to get into the corporate setting of the saints to share with them how the power of Christ manifested through you. Just brothers, we're going, we've been going through purity times the last three Fridays. Do you have any victories? Do you have any instances of the Lord giving you victory over that demonic, soul-destroying sin of sexual immorality and impurity? Do you have something to share with your brothers to encourage them in the midst of temptation so that they know it's possible? God delivered my brother. He'll deliver me too. I just need to stand fast. I need to wait. I need to pray. I need to look to Him. When we share that kind of life, with one another in the body of Christ, then we truly start acting like the body of Christ. We become more conformed to the maturity of Christ, Ephesians 4. When every every member of the body is doing its part and contributing what it has to share to the life of the rest, the life of the whole. So what do you need? Beloved, what do you need? What do, in whatever situation you're in, whatever you're going through, what do you need most? Well, methods and strategies can be helpful in their proper place. But if you don't have the life of Christ empowering you to live it out, you're going to fail and it's going to be for naught. Jesus says in verses 56 and 57 of John 6 that abiding in him and him abiding in you and you living because of him is a present reality that you can experience. And the way that you're going to get there is by feeding upon him. So believers, let's give ourselves to feeding upon the Lord Jesus Christ more in the week ahead.
and helping one another do so as well. Encouraging one another day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Setting our eyes upon him as we run this race that he set before us. Giving us grace to resist sin to the point of shedding our blood and faithfulness to him. Unbelievers in here, you've got one call this morning. And that is to come to Jesus and feed upon what he's done to save sinners like you. He gave his life. He laid it down in place of sinners so that sinners might live through him. His terms are very simple. Turn from your sin and believe in him as your perfect and matchless, all-sufficient Savior, and you will be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. May the Lord accomplish his will and his work in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we need you every hour. Every moment of our lives, we need a, a closer walk with you, Lord. And, and I pray that by your grace and your mercy, you would minister that to our hearts as we seek diligently to feed our souls upon you, upon the truth that's made known to us in your word, that you are the living Savior and you are the loving Savior who gave his life for sinners like us and who rose again from the dead to prove that he can save. Lord Jesus, help us see that more firmly, more truly. Help us embrace it with more sincerity and help us live and walk in your power. Lord, would you abide with us and help us by your grace to abide with you. We ask this in Jesus' name, Father. Amen. Would you receive a benediction? from Colossians chapter 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen. May you keep your mind fixed on that glory that's coming. Feed yourself with Christ this week, and he will keep you. You go in the peace of his name. Amen.